Welcome to the Cherry Hills Podcast. We're in a teaching series called In the Wilderness, a study in the book of Numbers. We're learning how to live with courage and faithfulness on the journey through the wilderness. Thanks for joining us. We're in this series on the book of Numbers called In the Wilderness. And even though in English it's called Numbers, what we've been learning is that it's actually in Hebrew means in the wilderness or in the desert. And we thought this would be an appropriate time to go through the book of Numbers, but that's not how everybody felt when they saw us announce that. I was talking to a man last week who said, I was really nervous when I saw we were gonna be studying Numbers, because when I was a kid, uh, my dad tried to have a devotional time where he would read the Bible to us at night, and uh, that ended in our family when we got to the book of Numbers, because when we read all these genealogies and all these begats and all these different family members, after a while, us kids just lost total interest and so when I saw we were going to be studying numbers, I went back to my childhood and remember thought, oh no. But he said, as we've been studying this each week, and as I've been using the study guide, digging deeper, I am amazed at how relevant the book of numbers is for this time of COVID-19. And that's my prayer, is that even today, when we come to one of the most bizarre stories in the book of numbers, that you will find yourself walking out of here today or finishing online by saying, that really does relate to where I'm at today. So if you're following along, here it is. We're going to be looking at this, uh, this encounter in Numbers 21, and the story is about the snake on a pole. And here it is. If Jesus doesn't explain it, this strange event makes no sense. If Jesus does not explain this event later, this event makes no sense. In some ways, we just go, is this just another one of those things in the Bible that's hard to understand? Why is this in the Bible? And I hope, again, you see, as time goes on today, that God knows exactly what he's doing. In fact, here's the series sentence that we've been talking about. We're studying the Old Testament book of Numbers because we want to learn how to live with courage and faithfulness as we journey together through this wilderness-like time in our history. What does courage look like? What is faithfulness? Last week, Luke talked to us about how can we be faithful in the little things? Because we tend to say if it's a little thing, it's not important. But we saw that even the little things are important. And today we're going to see something similar. So let's talk about this. And I hope you'll open your Bibles, if you haven't already, to Numbers 21. We're going to look at six verses in Numbers 21, verses 4 through 9. And as we look at these verses, I want to just unpack them with you. Because what we learn about is some venomous snakes in the wilderness that happen. And then we're going to see what can we take away from this passage so first of all, if you're following along in the notes, I want you to see that in impatience, the Israelites grumble again. In impatience, the Israelites grumble again. Let me read verses four and five if you want to follow along with me. It says, they traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom but the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no bread, <clears throat> there is no water, and we detest this miserable food. 
By the way, that last sentence there, I remember being in the cafeteria at school and hearing people talk like that when I was younger. And I remember thinking, how did that make the people in the cafeteria feel that made the food? But here they are grumbling again. And it's because of impatience. Now, let me just explain. If you go back to chapter 20, you'll find out that they asked permission from the king of Edom if they could pass through. They said, we'll we'll take care. We won't hurt your land. We'll give you money for it, whatever. But would you let us? Because it's going to take a lot longer if we have to go around Edom. And the king said, you're not coming through my territory. So now they have to take the longer route. Have you noticed, have you learned about yourself that when things are going your way, you pretty impressive of a person. But when things aren't going your way, well, then that's when we find out what we're really like. And that's what the Israelites find out about themselves, and they grumble again. And uh, they be, it's all because they're impatient. And uh, I'm thinking to myself, God's been very patient <laughs> 40 years with these people and their impatience. But sometimes we just need to put it in perspective. So I was reading this little story this week. I thought you might enjoy this. A young woman's car stalled at the stoplight. She tried to get it started, but nothing would happen. The light turned green, and there she sat, angry and embarrassed, holding up traffic. The car behind could have gone around, but instead the driver added to her anger by laying on his horn. After another desperate attempt to get the car started, she got out and walked back to the honker. The man rolled down his window in surprise. Tell you what, she said. You go start my car, and I'll sit back here and honk the horn for you. (laughs) I remember thinking to myself, that kind of just shows the silliness of what happens. It's easier to lay on the horn than it is to understand. And here they are in their impatience. And notice they grumble again. If you're following along, after God's delivered them again, they speak against him again. After God's delivered them again, they speak against him again. Now, what do I mean by this? Well, last week we saw that they grumbled about no water. And that Moses got upset and everything went south. We saw all because they were just upset about water. But if you go back and check out chapters 11, chapters 14, chapters 16, chapters 20, and now chapter 21, They are all examples of them grumbling. Friends, I just want you to notice, this is not an oops moment. This is a willful grumbling. This is a blaming God and blaming Moses. This is not something that they hadn't been corrected about before or instructed about before, but they insist on grumbling again. And so, uh, again, one of the things I just want you to, to notice is that the word again is appearing a lot in the notes already. Have you noticed that? And I don't know if anybody here has a struggle with some chronic wrongdoing, but I do. I see habits, I see patterns in my life, and here it is again. Jeff, what are you doing? There you are again, you're grumbling again. And uh, again, why, why do they keep doing this? It just shows that God is a God who is committed to leading them even when their behavior doesn't seem to improve as quickly as it should. Does anybody need to hear that God wants to still work with you even if you're not catching on fast enough? Oh man, when we were down here thanking God for his goodness, the word that came out of my mouth was patient. Oh God, you are unbelievably patient and long-suffering with me 
just as you were like with the Israelites. And notice this, that grumbling is a sin and leads to serious consequences. Now, before I, I unpack that, let me just say, when it, if you didn't notice this, when I said that God's delivered them again, verses 1 through 3 of chapter 21 show how they were up against it with the Canaanite king of Arad, and he came against them to attack them, and they said, if you'll help us, we'll do what you told us to do, and, and they, they do it. And God delivers them instead of destroying them through this Canaanite king. So he's just helped them win a victory and right after the victory, they're back to grumbling. And grumbling has serious consequences. Have you ever seen this quote by Stephen Covey? It's pretty powerful. It says, we are free to choose our actions. Have you noticed this? God made you. You have the freedom to obey or disobey. We are free to choose our actions, but we are not free to choose the consequences of these actions. When you and I do something, it affects other people. It, it sets in motion things that could come back to bite us. We just need to know that we may be free to do certain things. I may say I'm free to jump out of an airplane, but I'm not free to choose the consequences. What happened after I jump out of an airplane without a parachute? And so you and I just need to be reminded of that, and they were too. Now, grumbling, Steve taught us this several weeks ago, that complaining and grumbling are more serious, but we tend to downplay it. And grumbling, especially grumbling because it's against God and against his appointed leaders, it's against authority. This is one of the things that's really begun to set into our country more and more. We are quick to grumble against God's appointed authority. His authority and other authority he's put in place over us. And we need to understand that the reason why that's so serious is because it creates chaos and havoc, not only around us, but it also makes us not just bad, it makes us small. When you and I grumble, it's as silly as that guy laying on the horn over and over again, and it just makes us foolish people, and it also, it creates a pollution. Trish and I were in a large city recently, and we were just looking over this entire valley, and uh, she said to me, do you see all that smog? And I said, I do. And she goes, my goodness. And what was that? It's the pollution that's over the city. And when you and I grumble, we pollute the air and we pollute the people around us and it makes things ugly. And God loves us too much to let that go. He understands that if we try and buck authority, we will never know the blessing we were created to live under. And so grumbling is a serious, has serious consequences, okay? And the question is, what are they? Well, before I tell you what they are, I want you to see what 1 Corinthians 10, verses 6 and then 9 through 10 show us. Now, this is the New Testament now. Now, these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Now, verses 9 and 10. Nor should we put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and then died from snake bites. And don't grumble, as some of them did, and then were destroyed by the angel of death. These things happened to them as examples for us. They were written down to warn us who live at the end of the age. So they're warnings, they're examples. So again, the New Testament is showing us that even in these situations, their grumbling, which was a pattern, ought not to be a pattern for us. How do you overcome grumbling? It all depends on what you focus on. 
It all depends on what you choose to notice. And it all depends on how you choose to see reality. And as we saw a few weeks ago, it all depends on your attitude. How do I know if I'm grumbling? Uh, One of our missionaries texted me uh, and said, I'm thinking about your story of your buddy that used to say attitude check. And he said, I really appreciate that story because I've noticed I've been a lot more grumpy lately. Usually when we're grumpy, we're right near the edge of grumbling. The word grumpy and grumbling are really close together. Have you noticed that? So what happens? Here's the consequences. The Lord sends snakes, if you're following along, that bite them and many die. The Lord sends snakes that bite them and many die. Now I know my wife does not like snakes and I know some of you do not like snakes. So this is a part of the story that you probably are not gonna be comfortable listening to, but here's verse six. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them that bit the people and many Israelites died. And so we see here this going on. And here they are. All of a sudden they realize, oh my goodness, things are getting bad. Now, let me, let me just say this. In the middle of all this, what do you do when you mess up? I mean, they, you want to talk about messing up. And again, this wasn't oops. They messed up again. This is a pattern. What do you do when you mess up again in the same way? Is there any hope? Do you, is it just... Is it just come back to bite you? Or do you still have a recourse? This verse, this next verse gives us a lot of hope. Let me read verse seven. It says, the people came to Moses and said, we sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. If you're following along, they confess their specific sin and Moses prays for them. They confess their specific sin and Moses prays for them. Why? Why did they all of a sudden, they'd been so hardened, they'd been so self-righteous and so grumbling. What, what, what brought about the change of heart? Can I just be straight with you? Pain. Have you ever noticed you're going along, start to get cocky and all of a sudden, Some relational pain comes into your life, some financial pain, some emotional pain, some vocational pain, some physical pain. And all of a sudden you go, whoa, it brings you back to realizing your vulnerability, your mortality. And these people, they realize, oh my goodness, we're getting bit. This is out of control. What do we do? They confess their sin. The word confess means to say the same as that. Same thing as. So they agree with God. And what do they say? This is an important thing. This has helped me this week. I hope this helps you. We sinned, first of all. They didn't deny that they had done wrong. We sinned, and here's the key word. When we spoke against you and against God. Now here's what I've noticed this week. If I'm out of line, if I've done something wrong, the greatest thing I can do with God or whoever I've sinned against is to say, I was wrong when I did this. I sinned against you when I did this. It's taking responsibility and it's being specific. Most of the time we go, sorry, sorry, I was wrong. Shouldn't have done that. But instead they were clear. They just go, oh, 
Oh, we've come to our senses. Pain rang our bell. Look at what C.S. Lewis says about pain. Pain insists on being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, but shouts to us in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And God sometimes will allow or send certain things that will bring us up short, not to completely destroy us, but to get our attention, to rouse us and bring us back to a place of humility, a place where we go, God, you are right to bring me up short. I sinned against you when I did this. No, maybe it's grumbling for you. Maybe in this season you've found that you need to confess that you've been grumbling. I have. It's important to say when. It's so important to say when. Do you see that? Now, the next thing is, notice this, that God's remedy to Moses is to make a snake and lift it up on a pole. God's remedy to Moses is to make a snake and lift it up on a pole. Let me... um, read verses 8 and 9, ask you to read it with me in that second gray box. Would you read it with me out loud? The Lord said to Moses, make a snake and put it on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. Now, when I say this, um, some of you are using the study guide this summer. And I so appreciate all the work that Pastor Steve has put into that study guide. And he makes an interesting observation. If you use that, you probably already saw this, but here it is on the screen. Notice what he says about what kind of snake it was. From the study guide, it says the Hebrew term bronze can also be translated as copper. And according to the ESV study Bible, the area through which the Israelites were traveling had copper mines, and archaeologists have found a five-inch long copper snake in a Midianite shrine at Timnah. So it seems likely that copper is meant here. This is significant because it has a red color, so perhaps it is symbolically chosen as the instrument for atonement on this occasion to represent blood. So whether it was copper or bronze, Moses formed that, shaped that, and took that and put it up on a pole. That's an interesting thing. Doesn't the Bible say you shall not make a graven image in the form of anything? What it's saying is, is that's to worship it. And God is not calling them to worship it. He's simply saying, I'm going to provide a way for you to demonstrate that you believe that I can forgive you and heal you. You have to look at that. Now, why would he exalt a snake? Was it to taunt them? No. Remember they had said, why did you lead us out of Egypt to lead us out here to die in the wilderness? They kept saying, wish we could go back to Egypt. It was better in Egypt. It was better in Egypt. Have you guys ever looked at what the pharaohs wore on their headdress? Here's just a couple pictures. Some of you recognize this from just some of the places in Egypt where you see that thing on the front of their forehead. Here's a closer picture. You see, again, it was a cobra. And the Egyptians worshipped snakes. They thought snakes represented power. And so what is going on here is you see this picture of Moses lifting this up in the wilderness. When you lift something up like that, what you're doing is you are saying, this is cursed and this is defeated. So whatever was lifted up on a pole was cursed or defeated. And it was a way of saying, 
This is not being exalted for you to worship it. It's being exalted so you can see that I have defeated it and I can heal you. And that's going on here. And so they see that. Notice this, that God says, if you're following along, God says anyone who's bitten can look at it and live. God says anyone who's bitten can look at it and live. What a powerful thing. Now think about the word look. Sometimes we look at something as a glance, but if you're following along, here's the definition of look. It means to gaze at, direct my attention towards, and focus on intently. To gaze at, direct my attention towards, and focus on intently. Someone has said that what's going on right now in this pandemic is that God is exposing our idols. What does that mean? That means an idol is anything you look to for life. Anything you look to and keep looking to. Whatever's got your most attention, even when you're daydreaming, is it, is it the Lord or is it something else? And oftentimes we look to things for life. We look to them and think, they'll give me meaning. They'll give me value. They'll give me power. They'll give me life. And God is trying to change their mind and change the way they think. And so this story makes no sense unless Jesus explains it. Do you notice that when they did look at it, they lived? So years later, 1,400 years later, which shows that God's in no hurry to keep unfolding his plan. He's working even when we don't think he is. 1,400 years later, a religious leader comes to Jesus at night. His name was Nicodemus. And he wants to understand. And Jesus says to him, you must be born again. You cannot just keep going the way you are. You need a new heart and a new life. And then he says these words in John 3, 14 and 15. We have here on the screen. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life in him. And so here's another picture that we have of showing just these two side by side. And Jesus hung on a cross in our place and took our curse. It looked on the cross like he was defeated. But notice what Galatians 3.13 says to us about this. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. In the wilderness, God provides. In the wilderness, when we fail, again, there's hope. God provides. God provides. If you're following along, so that everyone who believes and looks to him will live, really live. So that everyone who believes and looks to him will live. John 6.40, Jesus said this on another occasion, for my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life. Eternal life is not heaven, friends. 
It includes heaven. It's a quality of life that begins now. And I will raise them up at the last day. And so what was meant to be cursed, Jesus took our curse, but he was lifted up again three days later. Forty days later, he was lifted up again and sent it to the right hand of God, and he is exalted. And so as we think about all this, let me just try and bring this home. Learning to look and live. What would it look like if you and I, in this pandemic, learn how to look and live? Okay? The first question, let me just ask you a couple questions. First, ask yourself this. Do I believe Jesus had to be lifted up for me? Do I believe Jesus had to be lifted up for me? Friends, can I just be honest and say that we live in a culture that believes that there are many ways to, be, to, to come to God. That, it, that, that Jesus didn't have to be crucified, but it was a nice option. The Bible says there's no other way for us to come to God. God had to provide a perfect sacrifice, just like he had to provide a snake in the wilderness, or they died. He has to provide, and he has, in Jesus Christ. So look at these verses. John 3 goes on after what Jesus says. Look at verses 16 through 18. For God, anybody heard this verse before? For God so loved the world. As impatient and grumbling as we've been, that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but shall have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. That was not his heart. But to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. Now look at verse 36 in that same chapter. Whoever believes in the son has eternal life. But whoever rejects the son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. That venom that was in their bloodstream would kill them unless God did something and provide, and he did. In the same way, sin in us will kill us unless God removes it or provides. Look at what Jesus says in John 8, 24. He gave this word one day to the religious leaders. I told you that you would die in your sins if you do not believe that I am the one sent from heaven. You will indeed die in your sins. But most of us don't believe this. But Jesus knew what he was talking about. And that's why he said the son of man had to be, must be lifted up in the same way. Do you believe that? Because here's the thing. If you believe that, that can lead you in the right direction. It'll lead you to look. Here's the last thing that I want to just ask you to think about with me, but please don't put your notes away because there's one more thing I want to show you that I want you to write on your notes, but here it is. Have I looked and am I looking to Jesus alone for life? Have I looked and am I looking to Jesus for life? Here's the thing. Some of us here, we've never looked to Jesus for life. Our parents have. Our brother or our sister has, our aunt or our uncle has, our grandparents may have, but we've never looked. We've said, I'll get around to that someday. The question is, have you? Today is the day of salvation. If you've never done that, if you're putting that off, why? What are you waiting for? And so I just want to share with you a story. Some of you have heard of a guy named Charles Spurgeon. 
Charles Spurgeon was a pastor in the mid to late 1800s. And his messages, his sermons are still being published today, 150 years later. And this guy had a major impact on London, England, and, and beyond. But something happened in his life when he was a teenager. Listen to his testimony. I sometimes think I might have been in darkness and despair until now, had it not been for the goodness of God in sending a snowstorm one Sunday morning while I was going to a certain place of worship. When I could go no further, I turned down a side street and came to a little primitive Methodist chapel. In that chapel, there may have been a dozen or 15 people, kind of like us today. I had heard of the primitive Methodist, how they sang so loudly that they made people's heads ache. But that did not matter to me. I wanted to know how I might be saved. And if they could tell me that, I did not care how much they made my headache. The minister did not come that morning. He was snowed up, I suppose. At last, a very thin-looking man, a shoemaker or tailor or something of that sort, went up into the pulpit to preach. Now, it is well that preachers should be instructed, but this man was really uneducated. He was obliged to stick to his text for the simple reason that he had little else to say. The text was Isaiah 45, 22. Look unto me and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. He did not even pronounce the words rightly, but that did not matter. There was, I thought, a glimpse of hope for me in that text. The preacher began thus. My dear friends, this is a very simple text indeed. It says, look. Now looking, don't take a great deal of pains. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger, it's just look. Well, a man needn't go to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool, and yet you can look. A man needn't be worth a lot of money to be able to look. Anyone can look. Even a child can look. But then the text says, look unto me. I, he said in broad Essex, many on ye are looking to yourselves, but it's no use looking there. You'll never find any comfort in yourselves. No, look to him by and by. Jesus Christ says, look unto me. Look to Christ, the text says, look unto me. Then the good man followed up in his text this way. Look unto me. I'm sweating great drops of blood. Look unto me. I'm hanging on the cross. Look unto me. I'm dead and buried. Look unto me. I rise again. Look unto me. I ascend to heaven. Look unto me. I'm sitting at the right hand of the Father Oh, poor sinner, look unto me, look unto me. When he got to about that length and managed to spin out 10 minutes or so, he was at the end of his tether. Then he looked at me under the gallery, and I dare say with so few present, he knew me to be a stranger, just fixing his eyes on me as if he knew all my heart. He said, young man, you look very miserable. Well, I did, but I had not been accustomed to have remarks made from the pulpit on my personal appearance before. However, it was a good blow. It struck right home. He continued, and you will always be miserable. Miserable in life and miserable in death if you don't obey my text. But if you obey this moment, you will be saved. Then he lifted up his hands and shouted as only a primitive Methodist could do. Young man, Look to Jesus Christ. Look, look, look. You have nothing to do but to look and live. I saw at once the way of salvation. I know not what else was said. I did not much take notice of it. I was so possessed with that one thought. 
I can't improve on that. Have you looked to Jesus for life? That's only part of the question. Some of us have done that. In the middle of this pandemic, are you still looking to Jesus for life? Some of you know that my dad has a major impact on my life. My mom, too. And I've told lots of stories. Maybe you've heard this one before, but when I was a little boy, my dad was actually pretty hard on me. And he criticized me a lot, and he was harsh. And one day, his mother was visiting, and my mom and his mother and he were in the kitchen, and I evidently he, he corrected me in an overly harsh way. And his mother said to him, you're just like your father. And that stung my dad good because he had felt the same from his father and had kind of personally vowed he would never be like that. The next morning, during his quiet time, he was praying, and he looked to the Lord and said, Lord, is it true? And the Lord said, it is. And he said, what do you want me to do? He said, look to me, and I will give you a love for Jeff greater than your own. He said, after that quiet time, he went down, and I was playing in the front yard. And he said, when he looked at me, he had a love for me that he hadn't had before. Are you looking to Jesus for your parenting? If you're a parent, are you looking to Jesus for your marriage, for your work, for your school, for your finances, for your body, for your fears, for your failures, for your successes? Look to Jesus and live. He can help us. I've often tried to understand what does it mean to look since I can't see him. And years ago, there was a man in our church who used to say, let's stop and look to the Lord in prayer. And I realized that was something I could do. And so I want to just ask you if you'd be willing to do that in a few moments. But here's one more thing. I told you not to put your notes away. Do you remember how I started this whole message? If Jesus doesn't explain it, this strange event makes no sense. Well, here's the way I'd like to just serve it up to you if you want to write new words over those other words. Here it is. If Jesus doesn't fulfill it, this strange event makes no difference. If Jesus doesn't fulfill it, this strange event makes no difference. But here's the good news. It can make all the difference in the world because it wasn't just a bronze snake, but it was Jesus lifted up for us. Thanks for joining us today. If you would like more information or to stay connected to Cherry Hills Church, please visit our website at cherryhillsfamily.org or follow us on Facebook.